Let us lift our hearts in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, for your grace today. We thank you for the opportunity to be in your presence and being among your people. The opportunity to set our minds and our affections and our attention on you. And we praise you for who you are and what you have done. And Lord, we ask that you speak to us through your word today. And Father, we also pray for the widows and the parents and the families of those who have lost loved ones defending our freedom. And we thank you for that freedom today that we can worship on this lawn and praise your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Today I'll be speaking about older men. We have seen a lot and experience a lot in this life. However, older godly men have a lot to offer everyone in this church because God has used our experiences to produce in us the characteristics described here in Titus 2.2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Paul says that older men are to be sober-minded. It literally means to be temperate. It refers to abstaining from alcohol. However, there's so much more to this than not getting drunk. It refers to a man who is sober in life. He is clear-minded, restrained, and in control. He's not controlled by any substance or any situation in life. This man is a man whose priorities are in line with the gospel. The temperate man measures his words and controls his actions. He is wise and careful when making decisions, and this comes from walking with God for many years. They're to be dignified. This is the kind of man who acts in a proper way. His behavior is appropriate and worthy of respect. Philippians 4.8 says to think about whatever is true, whatever is honorable. This is the same word that is used for dignified. There is a seriousness about the things that really matter. However, a dignified man is not someone who is stuffy, boring, and never smiles. A dignified man can laugh a lot, but there's a seriousness about him. And when it comes to things of eternity, he is serious. He doesn't laugh at what is immoral or tragic or at the expense of others. He's serious about living a godly life before a holy God. A dignified man will live in a way that brings honor and glory to the name of Jesus. God is calling all of us men to be a man that is dignified and to take serious the things of the Lord. He is to be self-controlled. The word has greater impact than you may think. It's more than just self-control. The word is referring to a man that is sensible and clear in his mind. The word self-controlled or sensible comes from a compound word. It literally means to, to save the mind. It refers to a man who is clear in his thinking. He is in control of his habits and desires. And this comes from years of walking with the Lord who has taught him to be sensible. And do you want to know what sensible looks like? Well, let's, look, let's look at what it is not. 
the book of Proverbs tells us many ways that a man does not have any sense. Or literally, how he has lost his mind. Let me briefly describe a few. Number one, if you are angry, you lack sense or you lost your mind. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger. Number two, if you engage in immorality, you have lost your mind. Proverbs 6.32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. Number three, if you're perpetually lazy, you have lost your mind. Proverbs 24.30, I pass by the field of the sluggard, by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. Number four, if you pursue worthless things, you have lost your mind. Proverbs 12.11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. And number five, if you reject correction and, right to, uh, correction and instruction, you have lost your mind. Proverbs 15.5, he who regards instruction is sensible. Let me say this as clearly as I can say it. Being sensible, being self-controlled is crucial to being a spiritual leader. If you can't control yourself and your passions, how can you ever lead a family or a church? Be sound in faith. The Greek word for sound is a word for healthy. It's where we get the word hygiene. Titus 2.2 tells us to be sound in faith. He's healthy when it comes to his faith. It's not fake. This is the kind of man who has learned through life's experiences that God is sovereign, and he can be trusted in every way. The older godly man has waited on God and has clung to him in, in the midst of everything, and he knows that God is faithful. Isaiah 26.4 says, Trust in the Lord forever, for Lord God is an everlasting rock. That is sound, healthy faith. And when we come to God in the midst of troubles, that rock is unmovable. Old men of faith know this. It is your faith that stabilizes your family in this church. It is your faith that your wife and your children will look to in the midst of trials. This is a mark of an older godly man. We need to teach men to be healthy in their love for God and their love for others as we grow older. True biblical agape love is found in 1 John 4.11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Older godly men have a real sense of the love that God has demonstrated to him. He loves the people that God has put in his life with a godly, tender affection. Love is a mark of an older godly man. An older godly man is a steadfast man. He keeps enduring. A godly man is a man who has the ability to endure hardship and adversity. He can endure difficulties and endure trials in life. The Greek word paints a beautiful picture. It's a picture of a man under a weight that's able to use all of his force to stand up under that weight and to bear that weight. Paul, toward the end of his life, writes in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Can you say, I've been faithful to God? I've been faithful to pursue a life of holiness and purity. I've been faithful to the ministry that God has given me. Can you say with Paul, I have fought the fight, finished the race, and kept the faith? Steadfast, steadfastness is another mark of an older godly man. Older men, have you ever looked up to a Christian man and said, I want to be like that man? Well, now you are that man. 
older men, there are young men seated all around you that are watching you. Be a model to these young men. They need to hear about your Christian walk and how you are still growing in the Lord. These young men are or will be going through something that you have already experienced. Share your faith and love with them. Young men, many of you think that old age is way down the road and that your whole life is in front of you, but it will be here before you know it. I want you to realize that each decision you are making right now is shaping that future old guy. People don't suddenly become angry and bitter at age 70. They've been working on it for a very long time. Decision by decision, attitude by attitude, reaction by reaction, your decisions shape who you will become. And do not discount the impact of the decisions you are making right now. Ladies, if you're married, this is what you pray for. Are you encouraging and praying for your husband to be that man in Titus 2? Single young ladies, pray that God brings you this kind of man. Titus 2 should be on your list of what you're looking for in a husband. And don't be discouraged because they are out there. Parents, if you have sons, what are you doing to train them to be that man in Titus 2? So, are you going to be that man? That man that is sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness? Godly men have much to give to this church. There are men in this church who are mature in their faith, and there's others who have just started the Christian walk and could use the help of an older godly man like you. You are valuable to this church because of who you are in Christ. Job 12, 12. Is not wisdom found among the aged? Does not long life bring understanding? Amen. Good morning, church. You know, I'm on our way here as we were driving. My daughter, Alyssa. Said, Daddy, if you preach your whole sermon, I'll buy you some ice cream. <laughs> so, Alyssa, if you're listening to this, I hope that you keep that, keep your word. So, I've been tasked this morning the responsibility of going over verse 3. So, let's get right into it. Titus is one of Paul's pastoral epistles. And the purpose of this letter was to encourage his younger brother in the Lord Titus. He was a trusted companion of Paul and came along him in his missionary journeys. And one of those journeys took them both to the island of Crete, where Paul leaves Titus to continue the work that was started. And what was the reason? Well, we read in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. His task was to maintain sound doctrine, and to appoint elders in every town. He was tasked to oversee the leadership and make straight what was crooked. Paul describes that there are many who are insubordinate. In other words, they do not submit to God's order of authority. Now, why would Paul assign the task for Titus? Well, first, we must understand the island's inhabitants. You see, when Paul planted the church in Crete, the people were known for their stubborn ways. Much like how New Yorkers are known for their driving habits, the people were known in Crete for their irreverent ways. We see this in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of your own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And Paul confirms this in the next verse when he says that their testimony is true. 
So Titus had this challenge of instructing believers in Crete to live countercultural and to present themselves in such a way that goes against the flow of society, which is what leads into chapter 2 about teaching sound doctrine. You see, sound doctrine must not only influence the thoughts of its hearers, but it must also shape the conduct of their lives. It's not just mere head knowledge of how to act. It should be followed by a changed behavior. And so Titus is to instruct these older women in how they should act. And when lived out in obedience, they will have a direct influence on the younger generation, namely the younger women. So I ask myself, what can I possibly bring to the table in instruction for older women? I thought to myself, am I qualified to even begin to speak about older women? And then I realized that the concerns I have come from what culture has prescribed. Our culture in the United States, or to be more specific, 21st century modern America, has dictated how women should act. What was once a standard for women is no longer up to date. So we need to change, and it's been changing ever since. The flaunting of sexuality, lewd talk, promiscuity, the advocating for the murder of the unborn are just some of the things that has saturated our culture in our society. So when we look at Titus and Paul's instruction, it seems alien to us. It seems far-fetched. It's not trendy. It's not empowering to women. Let's take a look at what Paul says in Titus. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Here are four observations that I've made as I study this text. Number one is older women. In contrast to younger women, those who have been believers for some time. You see, it doesn't give us an age. There isn't enough information to go by to definitively say that a woman in her 70s is considered older as opposed to someone who is in their 50s. Now, I may be completely wrong on this, but it seems to me that when we look at the context of sound doctrine, what matters more is not so much the age of the individual, but rather the spiritual maturity of the person. In other words, it is their day-to-day walk with the Lord. It's experiences that they've gathered and wisdom they've gleaned from Scripture that would qualify them as an older woman. And naturally, someone who is older in age should be more mature in the faith. But even if Paul was referring to specific age, the more important thing to take away is that the person be mature in the faith. And he makes that clear in the next part of the verse, and he gives us an imperative. They are to be reverent in behavior. So that's the second observation, reverent in behavior. These women were to live in such a way that demonstrated what holy living was. They were to be set apart and not conformed to this world. The King James Version puts it this way. That they be in behavior that becometh holiness. Behavior is supported by our worldview, our doctrine, and what we believe about God. So what you believe will lead to right living, and the behavior that women should exhibit is one of holiness. Your lives are to be set apart in your thoughts, in your actions, your demeanor, the way you carry yourselves, the matter in which you interact with others, and more importantly, your deep love for Christ. Are you, women of North Shore, showing by your actions a deep love for for the things of the Lord. Your love for the Lord should translate into holy living. We go on to our next observation. What are some marks of the contrary? 
He says here, not false accusers, not given to much wine. Simply put, slander and gossip are to be far removed from the lips of older women. Slander destroys relationships and causes harm to others' reputations. And it's intended with malice, which should not be a mark of a woman living. The word Paul uses here is the Greek word diabolos for slander. Another word for the devil meaning accuser. So older women refuse to listen to slanderous stories about others. Neither should be they given to much wine. See, it says specifically not to be enslaved to wine. You are to be mastered by Christ, not the spirit of wine. And what is the importance of these? It can have the effect of leading others into following an ungodly example, especially those who are looking up to you who are younger. Fourth observation, teach what is good and so train young women. You see, Paul understands that being able to teach what is good is a direct reflection of how you live out what you believe in. When you have sound doctrine, it should be followed by a life that is set apart, which will give you the opportunity to then teach. Rather than leading those who are younger astray through slander and drunkenness, teach them what is good. Application, one point. Live in such a way that glorifies God over and above society's demands and cultural standards. You see, culture is not our final authority. The word of God is. The older women of Crete had such a challenge because of the reputation that was known among the people. Culture has told them that they were liars, slanderers, and drunkards, and it was accepted and commonplace. But Titus is there to remind the church that those items should not mark an older woman who was bought by the blood of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourself, that you are in Christ Jesus, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. For women living today, for those in North Shore, love one another, walk in reverence, and so teach younger women what is good. So, older women, not just in age, but in faith, in the faith, have the responsibility and the privilege of teaching younger women. And younger women, not just in age, but in the faith, have the responsibility and the privilege of obedience and of being wise to hear and to hear and to apply. My, my portion, my passage this morning says, and so train the young women to love their husbands and <clears throat> children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. This will be hard, young ladies, because you'll be going against a culture and an understanding that is at enmity with the word. And you will be at enmity with the world. You may, be, you may even be opposing a worldview that you've formed through, your, through the years of living in this culture and context. Look, Look, this may sound corny, but, but I think it's an, an idea at the heart of this passage. Be worldly, not worldly. If this wasn't important, the Holy Spirit would not have inspired and preserved what is to follow. Okay? Everything in this letter, everything, in fact, that Paul is about is 
for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That's, that's Titus 1.1. This reading matters. Now, this might be the crux of my portion today. In the six charges that he gives, that he gives to you this morning, sisters, Paul commits older women to train, to train you, not just to, to post a tweet. So there's, there's a, a time and intentionality commitment. Train you to be the woman, to be woman of the word, not of the world. And to be spiritual, holy spiritual, conducting yourselves in a way that reveres his church and will enrich and bless your life. So Paul presents a syllabus, as it were, for this trainer to trainee commitment. For either party not to be faithful in this for whatever reason is to the detriment of the church and of you. The only exceptions given to not carry this out, older and younger woman, the only exceptions are there are none. No exceptions. Why? Because God loves his church. And because God loves his word. And because God loves all his people, my sisters, God is for you. God is for you. And he wants you to thrive and bear good fruit. And when I think about this applying to my own daughters, I, I tend to get a little emotional. And I want to plead with you as I would with my own daughters. Do this. Listen. These loving, critical, life-giving, holy imperatives are only found here in the Word and won't be on Oprah's whatever list or the latest pop songs. I, I feel like Paul is lifting his hand and snapping his fingers, saying, like, look, look here, look here, focus, focus. By the way, I think, I, I think young Christian women want what all Christian persons want. That is to glorify God and live to his glory, isn't it? And in that, a life that is fulfilling and peaceable. Joy as only the Lord can give. Real joy. True joy, right? But sometimes there's a way that seems right to a man or woman. Proverbs 14, 12. So instead, we press into the counsel and wisdom of God. Here's the thing. Women will not naturally flourish in the ideas listed here. And I can't get into much detail for the time, but these are not necessarily instinctive and certainly not easy. Paul begins, train the young woman to love their husbands. Maybe this seemed kind of natural, like BM before marriage. I just love my Johnny, my Juancito. And, and I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. But A, then life happens. And B, the Bible defines love. Like 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. Love and loving requires work. Look, loving your sinful because he's human husband is hard enough. But then Paul admonishes young women to be submissive to their husbands. That is so untoday. Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
or submit to your husbands in a way that shows your submission to Christ. This is not the world's way of thinking, but it is the Lord's way for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Let me say this because I obviously can't get into this entire list. There's, there's this other's priority in what Paul's letter to Titus gives us. You love your husband. You care for your children. You work for your home. And that, that doesn't mean that you can't be you. But home and family is where, is where nurturing and love and growth and where your greatest fulfillment will take place. Let me also say this. The, the imperatives in the list, love, self-control, kindness, purity, are, are very fruit of the Spirit. Paul says in Romans that to be, spirit, to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So the efforts of your mentors are, intend to, are intended to lead you to train, train you towards this spirituality. As we read earlier, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Amen. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Sisters, even as you welcome your older mentors, be countercultural. Bear spiritual fruit. In other words, be spiritual. Love God's word. Be wordly, not worldly. Amen. Only God can judge me. This is the motto of the rebel, the outlaw. The rap song with that title was a pregame favorite on my high school football team. It resonates with a lot of people, particularly within young boys. It assumes that the person's intentions are right and that nobody but God can place judgment on them. And if they do, well, that's on them. Only God can judge me. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Previously in chapter 1, as Alfred pointed out, Paul quotes a Cretan prophet who calls his own people liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul affirms this characterization. This is who they are surrounded by. So young men of the church, how do you differentiate yourself from those around you? One simple command, self-control. And is it so different today? Younger men, you are impulsive. You are prideful. And that fits well in today's culture and TV shows where the fathers are physically, emotionally, or intentionally absent and aloof where it's more important to dress well and be funny and present and be, pre and be present as a young man than it is to hold a job or raise a family. So young men on this lawn today, how do you differentiate yourself from 21st century America that promotes arrested development? Self-control. Paul then circles back to a specific young man, Titus, the head pastor in Crete, as Dan introduced. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects, to be a model of good works. The word model here is similar to the word mold or imprint. Be a mold of good works that your good works can be seen and replicated by others. And before I continue, 
a brief aside. It's important that I stress that Paul is speaking to people who believe in Jesus Christ. The prerequisite to all of this is knowing Jesus, not the other way around. So if you do not know Christ, if you are not a believer, welcome. But if you go home thinking that you should be self-controlled, that's generally good, but it will never get you to the gates of heaven. You need to know that we are lawbreakers against God, our creator and judge. And therefore you stand guilty before this judge. And the sentence for you is eternal torment in hell. Because God is not bound by time, the penalty for breaking his laws are also not bound by time. But this creator also sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live the sinless life where you failed and yet at the same time carried the punishment that you owed. <clears throat> and this is the promise. If you surrender the rest of your life to God, your record of sin from the moment you were born to your final breath, the record of sin that people know about and the secret sins that you've never told anyone about, every single sin would be erased because Christ died for you. And instead, you'd inherit Christ's righteousness. You cannot erase your past sins through behavior modification. You can believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ and be transformed by the Holy Spirit in order to do the good works, to be self-controlled. Again, not the other way around. And back to the text. Paul, again, in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Titus, in order to change this, be a model of good works. See, it's one thing to tell a young Christian to be good, but it's another thing to show a young believer who previously has only known the world's ways and say, not like that, like this. Or as Brian said, the smarter Brian, because maturity comes from true discipleship. And true discipleship doesn't come primarily in the form of books and instruction, but comes primarily in the form of life together. A lot of who I am, how I parent, how I practice hospitality, how I pray, how I counsel, how I share the gospel, so much of it stems from shadowing and following Ed Moore over the years. That's an imprint, a model, a mold of him in my spiritual walk. This neck thing, though, that I have is, is not from him. It's just a neck pain. <clears throat> but it's one thing to tell me my conversation should be Christ-centered. But it's another thing to have had shared long conversations with Caleb Bunch first. It's one thing to tell me fellowship doesn't just mean hanging out. But it's another thing to spend time with Harry Fujiwara first. Forgive me that I can't list everyone, especially those on this lawn today. But there is a list of men whose spiritual works are molded identically in my daily life. And many of you certainly have your own lists. Because Christianity is displayed in our works, not in our doctrine. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Not knowing the word, but guarding his way, living it according to the knowledge of that word. Paul then addresses Titus' teaching, verse 7. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul tells Titus to teach sound doctrine. That's it. That's the only thing he says in this entire chapter, in this entire text, about the content. And while that's very important, Paul is more concerned with the delivery, the how. Show integrity and dignity and sound speech. Why? So that an opponent may be put to shame 
having nothing evil to say about us. This is most likely, the opponents is most likely in reference to Titus 1.10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, the Jews. These are men, not elders, who have platformed themselves and have become influential, causing division in the church. Paul gives specific instruction on how to address them in verse 11. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And now Paul says, how? By not repaying evil for evil or fighting fire with fire, but to show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Because if Titus can remain blameless, the false teachers run out of ammo. And if they run out of ammo, their novelty runs out. See, content matters much less when that content is not lived out by the one who speaks it. Would a son believe in the love of an absent father? Finally, notice how Paul says to do all these things so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Us. Not having evil to say about you. He suddenly makes it about himself, about the church. Only God can judge me. It's true. Only God's judgment matters, but God cares about how others view the way you live. Matthew 5, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Because otherwise, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Romans 2. When children misbehave, mine happens to be doing that right now, nobody thinks, wow, what a bad kid, and ends that thought and moves on. No, the next questions are, where are their parents? Who are their parents? Whose kids are those? If you have surrendered to Christ, God is your father. And you, Christians, you represent us. The transforming power of the gospel is ridiculed, is diluted, when we look and act like the rest of the world. It is why people can call Christianity just another religion. It is why people think that the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ is not the only way, but one way into heaven. Because what's the difference? Despite pastoring one of the largest churches in England, Spurgeon and his elders never lowered the bar for membership. When somebody applied, the elders and deacons of the church would actually go out to the person's home and interview the person's neighbors. Did you know he is a Christian? How does he live? How does he treat his family? How does he treat his neighbors? They wanted to know how this person's life matched up with their written application. How does your life match your witness? You know doctrine. You share the gospel. You go to church. But does your life match up? Do your actions back it up? Are critics silenced? This morning, as we preach these words in public, consider this. Are you a light even onto this block, this neighborhood? Young men, is your life molded more by the world and its rules of attraction? Or is there a distinct difference in you from what the world expects from younger men? Young men, there's a weight of responsibility the Bible places on you. Are you living it today? Let's get right into it. My, uh, my section for today is Titus 2, 9-10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 
The difficulty of, of this verse is the audience of bond servants. We don't really have bond servants today in modern day America. And there's a temptation to look at the general structure of bond servants and masters as an employee-employer relationship and then just move on. Then everything here falls in line pretty neatly. Submit to your employer, don't argue, don't steal, so that you are a good representative of God our Savior. It's pretty clear cut. To do so, however, would completely do a disservice to the text to so quickly form this verse to a modern-day interpretation that we can relate to without reading it within its context. Not that we can't pull out an employee-employer relationship out of these verses, but we'll come back to that later. The audience here, bond servants, or perhaps more accurately to the Greek slaves, were considered property underneath the Roman government. And while some slaves were underneath good conditions and it's possible that some managed property or had education, it's likely that the majority of the slave populace did not. It is not a state where there was if, where there was much if any freedom and there was likely to be abuse between slaves and masters. And perhaps even the church was an escape or a place of refuge for many slaves as an escape from their horrible situations. But Paul is writing to these people, and he's telling them that their situation needs some addressing. He starts with, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, in everything. Of course, this is a command that is barred to any sin, but submission and everything is commanded regardless of a master's treatment of his slaves. He expands further to say that you must be well-pleasing and non-argumentative in your obedience. And I wonder, can some of these masters even be pleased? Much of the ancient Roman texts written by masters in regards to their slaves only had polarized descriptions where they are presented either as good slaves or more commonly as bad, disloyal, lazy, and deceitful people. If your master only saw you as a bad, lazy, deceitful person, regardless of who you actually were, then yeah, it might be pretty hard to be well-pleasing. If the master cannot be pleased, then what's the point? Should we not stop trying? No, absolutely not. The command here is to be well-pleasing and non-argumentative with your masters. Even if it appears to be in vain, we have a God that overlooks nothing and works in ways that we do not see. So even if none of the immediate work seems to have an effect, do not be discouraged. Have hope that the heavenly master who gave the commandment is taking care of the finer details. Moving on to the next part of the verse, not pilfering, which just means to not steal, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And this seems pretty straightforward. It's a pretty basic commandment that's taught to every child to not steal because stealing is bad. But I wonder how straightforward it would be to somebody who has literally no wages and where you are generating a profit for absolutely nothing. Doesn't that injustice deem that you can take just a little bit what you deserve? The answer is still a resounding and unshaken no. Our circumstances don't change what God has deemed as sin. They are to be showing all good faith, to be reliable and trustworthy, even when what they are owed is not given. So, what's the point of this all? Paul has lined up what honestly might be a pretty difficult ask to such a hurt group of people. He's asking for submission 
to these masters regardless of, a, regardless of how kind or how terrible they would have been. The people here are not to claim that Christ is their only master whom they will obey, or if their masters are also Christians, that they are brothers and sisters in Christ and thus have equality. No, the command is to be submissive to their will. So why does God command this? So that, verse 10, in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. To adorn means to make beautiful. They are to make beautiful the doctrine, the teaching of God our Savior. Why? To make the teachings of God attractive. Regardless of the injustice where the government saw it fit that men can own other men made in the image of God, they still needed to be good representatives of Christ so that their masters and the world can see how the gospel affects the conduct of their servants and to be shocked that their slaves, who they believe can only be lazy, sneaky, and headaches to deal with, are actually really hardworking and honest. And their masters will put together the testimony of their actions and what their lips preach about Jesus, and it may even bring their masters to faith. So, now we can go back and see that the dynamic here, albeit not the same in many regards, is similar to that of an employee and employer. And now we can apply it to our own lives. And when we compare our dynamic with their dynamic, it's easy to see how much better we have it off with employers than they did with masters. We have wages, laws that protect us, and the ability to choose our employers. When you see how bad the slaves of Crete had it, and you see their commandment to obey these verses, and you see that if they could bridle their tongues and be quiet-hearted, then we should too as well. Not that submission is always easy, and not that we should preface every trial with somebody else has had it worse, but let's be encouraged that this is how our early church brothers and sisters were obeying in the midst of their trials, and that we too, like them, should make sure that we're adorning the teachings of God in our workplaces. I close this message with, well, they had it really hard and still obeyed, so obey too, so that the teaching of God can be adorned in your workplaces, then I'd be missing the entire point. While it may be true, it neglects the heart attitude of the why we look to obey commandments given by our Lord. If we are solely upstanding employees because it's been written down as a command somewhere, then we have become legalists more focused on looking good than on working unto the Lord for his glory because of our love for our heavenly master. Colossians 3, 23 to 24 says that, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. If we are working heartily and serving the Lord Christ unto the God of our Savior addressed at the end of Titus 2.10, then we will keep these commandments and be submissive to whatever respective authority we have as a byproduct. If we love our God, then we will keep his commandments, which includes submission and well-pleasingness. And then when our bosses notice our behavior, and they certainly do notice, they should put the pieces together that you are dedicated to the God that you talk about, and that your conduct is evidence that you take your belief seriously, and that you are different from the world because of your belief. The gospel is worth adorning for all to see. So let's make sure that we're presenting said gospel, the good news of Christ paying for our sins so that we can have eternal life on no merit of our own 
is earnestly adorned with our obedience. Verses like these are great because some verses are hard to apply immediately in the moment. But the work week starts not tomorrow because of Memorial Day, but on Tuesday. And so perhaps Tuesday, if you already have not been, can make sure that we are adorning the Christian teaches Christian teachings given to us by our Lord. Let us pray. Dear Lord, I am so very thankful, Lord, for the men that you have provided, Lord, to preach your word today. Uh, Thank you for their obedience to your word. Thank you for their labors. And Lord, thank you for this church that has prayed for us. Um, And just, Lord, as we enter our weeks, Lord, May we all, younger women, older women, young men, older men, seriously consider these verses, Lord, and analyze our heart positions with you. In your name we pray. Amen.